Welcome, everybody, to our ongoing nightclub interview series, where my guest today is the author and esteemed scholar, Father Francis Tiso. But before we get started, as usual, a few very brief housekeeping items. Our book study group, which meets on Tuesday nights, still going on discussing dreams of life. And I think it's going to go on for at least another four months. So you're more than welcome to join us. I actually have another book coming out this week on the total other end of the spectrum called the Lucid Dreaming Workbook, which is a format I've actually never tried before, this workbook approach. But honestly, I think it turned out more or less okay. Outside of this, because of the holidays, things are pretty quiet for my end until I start up again with teaching gigs starting in January. So as for my guest today, I had a truly breathtaking time talking to this amazing scholar practitioner. I mean, really, he kind of blew me away. Central to our conversation was the role of light, so central to enlightenment, and actually the genesis of reality itself. I reminded Father Francis, something he knows all too well, that we are in fact made of stardust, literally, fed by starlight, and participate in an ongoing spiritual level of photosynthesis that I believe is actually quite illuminating. We then turned to a discussion about his amazing book, Rainbow Body and Resurrection, and talk about how Christ possibly attained the rainbow body and how this is possibly connected to what we know is one of the most famous relics in all of religion, the famous Shroud of Turin. We talk about the role of light mysticism in Christianity, Taoism, Sufism, and Buddhism, and then transition into a more advanced set of teachings and topics, really, from any contemplative tradition, including things like dark retreat, the practice of treksha, or cutting through in togal, or crossing over, all of which come from the high schools of Tibetan Buddhism, Dzogchen. The whole conversation kind of circumambulates the central proclamation of the Hevajra Tantra, which proclaims wisdom abides in the body. Well, so does light. And so Father Francis and I discussed the relationship of this external light to the light of the mind and how, in fact, this light is connected to the light of lucidity. Join us. What a ride we what a ride we had. Hi everybody, Andrew Holacek here. I cannot tell you how excited I am to introduce you to a truly remarkable individual, Father Francis Sisso, and his breathtaking work. And so as usual, I will introduce um, Father Francis with a brief biography, and then we're just going to jump into some really rich conversation. <clears throat> so Father Francis holds a BA in Medieval Studies from Cornell University, a Master of Divinity degree from Harvard, and a doctorate from Columbia University and Union Theological Seminary, where his specialization was Buddhist studies. He was Associate Director of the Secretariat for Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops from 2004 to 2009, where he served as liaison to Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, the Sikhs, 
and traditional religions, as well as the Reformed Confessions. He is the author of Liberation in One Lifetime, which includes his translations of several early biographies of the Tibetan yogi and poet Milarepa. And he is the author of this magisterial tome called Re uh, Resurrection and Rainbow. I'm sorry, Rainbow Body and Resurrection, Spiritual Attainment, the Dissolution of the Material Body, and the Case of Kempo Acha. And so um, we'll primarily be focusing on that book. But Father Francis, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to meet with us. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. And uh, it's an opportunity to be grateful and also to share some ideas that I think uh, other folks, you know, that have tuned in at various times, uh, you know, to the YouTube talks and things like that have really appreciated. It's helped people make some spiritual progress. So that's what we're Fantastic. about. Well, let's start um, with you. And this is an impossible task. But um, elevator pitch on, on this book, uh, Rainbow Body and Resurrection. You know, give us give us a brief overview about the the kind of the spirit of this book. Um, and I love the way you also talk about the approach to uh, reading it. Um, you know, to approach it almost as as a as a piece of music as an art form. Um, but let's use that as a platform, um, Father Francis. Before I ping some um, quite specific. Uh, questions your way. So tell us a little bit about this book and, and why you wrote it. All right. Yeah. It, sometimes I refer to it as a kind of Mahler symphony. And uh, so it has, you know, returns to themes over and over again. And there are some repetitions. But I think that that actually helps orient the reader through a very complicated uh, uh, line of uh, research. You know, I did a number of uh, research trips and interviewed quite a few lamas uh, and yogis and uh, people involved with Dzogchen, but also other spiritual systems. And so to give uh, credit to these different traditions, the book goes into considerable depth about, you know, what was going on in the past and especially in that incredible eighth century in China and Central Asia and also to go into uh, the different phases of the development of Dzogchen as an approach in, uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, so and Bonpo as well. So the book uh, is an opportunity to open up a lot of uh, different uh, uh, encounters, right, among different religions and among different uh, refined and distinguishable lines of meditation practice, right, from Tantra and Mahayana, Theravada, many of the forms of Buddhism, but also some of the forms of religion that we find along the Great Silk Road. Uh, in Central Asia, including Christianity, Islam, Manichaeism, and of course, uh, Taoism, you know, the, the great Chinese uh, uh, synthesis of spirituality. So the book tries to go into all of this, exploring, well, where would the idea emerge that a yogi can dissolve his or her body into rainbows? Okay, so that's what we're exploring. And the reason why I started this exploration is because my own spiritual teacher, Brother David Steindelrost, a Benedictine monk, was curious as to whether the dissolution of the body in the rainbow body phenomenon could be in some way compared or linked to his own research on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
All right. So he was in dialogue with the Jesus Seminar people and wanted to know more about uh, these practices, which sound a little bit like uh, what happened to Jesus, you know, after he was taken down from the cross. So uh, we did, you know, I, I obeyed my spiritual father, you know, and, uh, and a long term inspiration that I've had about exploring light phenomena in the spiritual life and went to Tibet and did this research. And uh, we also went to South India. We went to uh, meet with several people in different parts of Europe and also the United States and Eastern Europe uh, to look at the Eastern Christian uh, contemplative tradition to try to get a broad picture of this. And then what happened is that after I did the interviews and after I had collected mountains of information, I said, you know, this is really challenging. I need to think about this. So from about 2005 until maybe 2010, 2011, I kind of let the wine stay in the cask. Mm. All right. And I was really wondering whether I should even publish this. But a number of things happened and friends also encouraged me. And uh, so I decided to publish the book. I decided to put the book together and publish it. And uh, I got permission from uh, a monk of the monastery of Boza here in Italy to uh, translate into English and comment on his own translation of one of the important Chinese Christian works from the 8th century. And that was a great help, too, because once we see how the Chinese Christians understood Buddhism, and how they were able to articulate their theology in Buddhist and Taoist terms, all of a sudden we have some really good material for talking about a real dialogue between advanced contemplative Buddhists and advanced contemplative Christians taking place in just the time when the beginnings of Dzogchen in Tibet are beginning to uh, bubble up, you know. And then people like Sam Van Shaik, you know, in England, who does work on the on the early manuscripts of Dzogchen, you know, his uh, input has been extremely helpful too, because there you can see the phases, the steps by which uh, Dzogchen evolved in Tibet. So that's kind of an overview. the uh, The main point here I'm trying to make is that. Uh, conversations took place in Central Asia that were momentous for the development of a very profound approach to contemplative discipline. And what we called Dzogchen uh, for the early centuries, from about the 8th to the 11th century, is the story of encounters uh, of great masters and their lineages uh, that really changed uh, the way at least some Tibetans thought about Buddhist practice. Yeah, it's extraordinary, Father Francis. And, and, and when I read it, um, I was stunned at the scope of the scholarship. Uh, you introduced me to strains, streams of wisdom um, of which I was totally unaware. And uh, the kind of the incredible syncretic nature, you could almost say the holistic nature of how in almost a trans or interreligious sense, these, um, you know, no one has a patent on truth. And that we can we can draw in a more um, expansive and therefore humble way, opening the aperture of our academic lenses, our hearts and our minds to all these other amazing lineages of insight and around all circumambulating one of my absolute favorite topics, Father Francis, which is light. Um, mm -hmm. And you yes. know, it's like if we pause to reflect on it, it's extraordinary. We we are made literally of stardust. 
we're fed by starlight. Mm -hmm. There's a reason there are so many solar theologies. And fundamentally, we are photosynthetic beings at both physical and spiritual levels. And so your, your illumination, pardon the pun, on this topic is just literally mind-blowing. And, and for me, the resonance um, both with the Togo traditions um, in Dzogchen and in particular, the Bardo teachings, especially the luminous Bardo of Dharma Ta, were absolutely mind-bending. And so here's, I want to start discussing a little bit more detail, this um, amazing um, kind of bi-directional process that your book intimates from the outset, and, and this completely resonant with tantric um, kind of uh, imperatives, and that is that in Tantra, body is as important as mind. And in tantric practice, we use the body, as you well know, in this kind of bi-directional way to actually transform the mind. And so it makes complete sense that as you put it in your book, how is it that the body itself might participate in this journey and actually might participate in enlightenment? And, and I love, I so love your playful mm -hmm. sense of humor when you talk about, about mm -hmm. how these teachings on rainbow body and resurrection intimate a kind of um, seal of approval, so to speak, of the tradition, or that there is a happy ending. It, 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 when people really take this to heart, it is an absolute deal maker. It's a total game changer that in, in my um, personal path, you know, a great deal of what I try to do, Father Francis, is, is again, in the spirit of alchemy and tantra, work with transforming obstacle into opportunity. And the ability to actually see the end of life and, and death is, is quite literally a once in a lifetime opportunity for these vast levels of uh, both psychospiritual development and also kind of manifestation of uh, accomplishment is no small thing. So talk to us a little bit about the role of light, photism, um, light mysticism, and how this is central to the journey of this book. Okay, yeah, it's a good one to dig in on. You know, I, I was a little bit hesitant about publishing this book because I felt that neither the scientists nor the historians of religion, uh, my my colleagues, you know, in various universities, would um, would like this sort of thing. <laughs> they would be a little bit, shall we say, uh, reluctant to accept the claims being made and the thought that I would have to defend, as it were, in court, people who I had come to respect as really very holy people uh, really kind of put me off for a while there. And it took a lot of, a lot of courage, and I finally worked up the courage to do it. Uh, recently, I was going through some of my old papers, and I found a... Uh, a paper that I wrote about 22 pages long back when I was uh, an undergraduate at Cornell. And it is about the light mysticism of Dante's Paradiso. Mm. Okay. Now, as you probably know, everybody reads Inferno, you know, because it's so much fun down there, right? <laughs> but nobody reads Paradiso. So I said when I was a junior, uh, you know, working in medieval studies, let me work on the Paradiso. And I came up with this paper on the light mysticism. And, you know, Dante is interested in transformation. All right. And so many people have missed this theme, not only in Dante, but in Christianity in general. Transformation, the gradual transformation of mind and heart through exposure to a higher light, 
which St. Augustine mentions in his own mystical writing. So Dante describes his ascent through paradise as moving from one stage to another. And every time he rises, the light becomes more blinding, hmm. right? And then little by little, he gets used to it, and then he can move on. And so it's what's happening is the light is changing him. Hmm. He, by being exposed to that light, by allowing it to penetrate his being, then becomes one with it and can move forward to the next stage until finally as the, the great vision in the 33rd canto of Paradiso of uh, the Trinity as, as three spherical rainbows. Okay, so there we are. And so this paper, you know, I'm reading it and I'm saying to myself, you know, I really need to put this on academia.edu because it's still a good paper, but also because in some ways it traces a program of research that started 50 years ago. You know, that, that we are bearers, each one of us, of a message in life. And I can see reading that paper that I already you know, was being called mysteriously to do work on light and light mysticism. So there's a place to start, you know, in that. Now, in recent years, I would say starting about 20, 25 years ago, I started reading uh, the, the work of a Belgian Carmelite hmm. named Robert Bullet who was working in Baghdad most of his life, translating all of these obscure texts out of Aramaic and, and Arabic and Georgian and all kinds of other uh, ancient languages to try to understand the mysticism of the what's called the Syro-Oriental or the Church of the East, okay, the so-called Nestorians. And he was able to locate manuscripts that nobody else was able to find, and he translated them into French. And no one has yet seen fit to translate those books into English. Uh, he passed away in 2008. It's a shame. They, they really need to be translated into English because there you will find direct quotations from the uh, Syriac-speaking mystics, the Aramaic-speaking mystics, describing light phenomena that are quite extraordinary, spheres of light just like the Tigle that yeah. you get in, in, in Togal practice, uh, in, in Dzogchen. And a lot of other things. Uh, in Edia, they report in Edia. They report states of wonder, which are, of course, Samadhi states, and uh, quite a few other things. And it's all based on a quite rigorous and uh, well-organized, but basically radically contemplative monastic way of life. I mean, these people went, they sent their representatives to Egypt to learn from the Egyptian monks how it was done. And then they brought that back to Iran and Iraq, and then later on into Central Asia, the practices that had been the basic Christian monastic tradition, the psalmody, the solitude, the silence, the absorption into wonder, the contemplation that goes beyond words, all of that. And so uh, you've got this uh, great tradition coming through Central Asia in the 7th, 8th, ninth century and encountering Zoroastrians, uh, Buddhists, uh, uh, also Indian yogis, Manichaeans, of course, and many others. And so there is this amazing uh, flow from West Asia to Central Asia and then on into China during the Tang Dynasty, right? So 7th, 8th, ninth century. And uh, they start writing in Chinese. Now, what's really interesting is that 
one of these uh, Christians from the Middle East who took the Chinese name Jingjing mm, yes. began to work with a Buddhist monk named Pradnya. And Pradnya turns out to be the monk from Central Asia, probably from what is now Afghanistan, who taught Kobo Daishi. You know who Kobo Daishi is? Yeah. The founder of the Shingon tradition in Japan. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He taught Kobo Daishi Sanskrit, and mm -hmm. he introduced him to the seed syllables that are fundamental to Shingon tantric practice. Mm -hmm. Now, Prajna seems to have learned Chinese from Jing Jing. Wow. when the two of them were working together on translating one of the Mahayana sutras into Chinese, which is absolutely amazing. And we begin to get bits and pieces, especially from Japanese scholars, on who was Prajna and who was he in touch with in the Tang capital of Xi'an in the 8th century. And of course, it's a it's a, uh, how shall we say, uh, kind of a rogue, what's that, rogues gallery of the greats. You know, these incredible masters from India, from Japan, from Korea, from China, and so on and so forth, Central Asia, translating and discussing things, and also getting themselves sometimes into trouble. Jing Jing and Praja got into trouble with the uh, Imperial Translation Board because a Christian wasn't supposed to be translating a Buddhist sutra, you know. But, but then Prajna came back and said, but I, you know, I learned Chinese so well from this guy that... Uh, he fought back. He translated the uh, the Huayen Sutra, the great Avatamsaka or um, Lotus Garland Sutra, uh, which clearly is translated in what four or five volumes, and uh, he translated that. And of course, that has the Gandavyuha Sutra in it, right? Yeah. And the, what what happens in the Gandavyuha Sutra? Manjushri sends his disciple Sudodana to go and meet with fifty three teachers of different lineages different genders, different religions, and so on and so forth, to learn the wisdom needed to become a true bodhisattva. So it's as if Prajna is saying, you see, the scriptures justify what I did with Jing Jing. Yeah. And in fact, he won, because in the end, they made him head of the translation bureau. <laughs> so, exactly. you know, what a great story. But it, it shows us the climate of intellectual intensity and spiritual intensity that prevailed at that time, late 8th century, in Tang, China. And that's just the very time in which uh, the uh, imperial uh, dynasty in Tibet is introducing Buddhism formally as a state religion. And so there is a lot of exchange between China and Tibet at that time. And I think there is little doubt that the Tibetans knew what they were getting into with the West Asian religions. Uh, they knew about Manichaeism. Uh, it's harder to demonstrate they knew a lot about Christianity, but they were very suspicious. They were standoffish. But there is one text from Dunhuang, which is very interesting. Do you know what you know what Mo is, right? Yes. The the divination Absolutely. procedure. All right. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, Mo uh, involves the use of manuals, somewhat like the I Ching in China. Mm -hmm. And the, in the manual, you have the possible readings of the throw of the dice or the number that comes up when you toss the mala in the air, depending on what uh, what system you're using, you get the number. And then you read the saying that goes alongside the number. So the number that corresponds to the uh, amazing 
divination relating to Jesus in a Tibetan Mo manual found at Dunhuang. I think it was 12, if I'm not mistaken. And so you can see that when somebody got the number 12 from throwing the dice, they would go to this one and would say, oh man, your best helper and protector is Isu Mishia. <laughs> okay, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus oh, the wow. Christ, wow. who is just like Shakyamuni and Vajrapani. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, and the outcome will be very auspicious. All right, it's right there in the in the text, which you can find on the uh, the Parisian collection of the Peleo uh, Dunhuang manuscripts. It's incredible to see that, you know, in actual. Uh, you know, right there in ink on uh, on that paper going back to the 8th century. And so the, the Tibetans did know something about Jesus and held him in high regard. So uh, there is a connection. It's a thin one. It's a, it's a very subtle one. But uh, it's something that tells us something of the kind of exchange that went on, you know. They knew about Islam, too. And, uh, and they specifically knew about Manichaeism under the imperial uh, period when they were introducing Buddhism as a state religion uh, with the help of Kamalashila and Shantarakshita, they specifically stated that Manichaeism was going to be prohibited, all right, from Tibet. They did not want the institutional presence of Manichaeism and they give a typically uh, scholastic Buddhist reasoning to reject it. And I suspect that uh, officially they did the same thing with Christianity, but that didn't, obviously that didn't mean that in some parts of the Tibetan empire, Christianity was known, practiced, and even integrated with uh, some of the Buddhist practices. So there's a lot going on there. Uh, when we get to the story of Garab Dorje, there's even oh, more right. surprises. No, <laughs> it, it's truly amazing. And, and you know what, what, several things come to mind here, Father Francis. One is this, just extraordinary rich uh, kind of cross-pollination that can take place. And mm -hmm. I, I'm curious, just a, a kind of a little sidebar thing, to what extent um, are you finding resistance both within your Christian tradition and also um, <clears throat> Buddhist levels of receptivity? Because, you know, I, I would suspect that, you know, many people are highly proprietary about their streams and, and they don't want this kind of cross-pollination. Like, for instance, when I read your extraordinary history of Dzogchen and how, in fact, it was influenced by these Christian strands and others. I, 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 first of all, I was blown away. And secondly, I was going, gosh, I wonder how this is going to land with the traditionalists on this. So before we talk, I want to return more deeply into the notion of body and light in just a second. But I'm curious along mm -hmm. those lines, you know, one thing that, that comes to mind, there's this playful saying, you can always tell who the pioneers are because they're the ones with all the arrows in their back. <laughs> and so, so Absolutely. I, and I always say, well, you know, it's interesting because they're they're shot by those behind them. That's why the arrows are in the back. But how <laughs> how many arrows are coming your way, or how how receptive have you found this truly radical research to be? Yeah, I think a lot of times the problem comes more from the uh, uh, Buddhist side. Um, by the way, with the bunpos, I've had no trouble at all. And the bunpos Wonderful. have been extremely, extremely good and, and extraordinary uh, when we get to what their practices are and the implications of their practices. We really have something uh, quite 
quite accessible. That's what's extraordinary about it. And with the Nyingma people, they love to layer on one thing on top of another to let you know that, you know, they've got this gigantic, complicated system that explains everything. And it's typical of a self-defense mechanism, you yeah. know, that you have yeah. your scholasticism that can, uh, you know, um, uh, break the break the head of your opponent kind of thing. And sometimes there is a little bit of a kind of uh, sectarianism that comes in. But, you know, uh, all I'm doing in my book is I'm citing people who are well known uh, to the study of Dzogchen. Everybody from the Bonpo scholar in Paris, Santan Carme, who was respected by everybody, the first person to write a full-fledged book on the Great Perfection, uh, David Germano, right. University of Virginia, one yep. of the, the top scholars in this area, Sam Van Shake, who's doing brilliant work and publishing one practically one book a year on the early history of Tibet, using the Dunhuang manuscripts and other materials. Uh, Dan uh, Martin in Jerusalem has been an extremely helpful uh, uh, friend and guide over the years, uh, one of the really great historians of, uh, of Tibetan, especially of the obscure aspects of Tibetan history, and so many others. You know, so uh, I'm really citing people who are really very well known and highly respected. And so uh, the the idea here is that uh, what I'm proposing is that there had to be some kind of a click, right? <laughs> there had to be some kind of a thing where, you know, Buddhism, which as Santan Karma explicitly states, Buddhism was not really all that interested in the body. Even in the tantric practices, the bodies are a means to an end, all right? And the end is not embodied, okay? Then all of a sudden you start getting people talking about, you know, transformation taking place and that's a typically tantric category and then you start to get into a you know the use of the mind in such a way that mind and body together are, are beginning to experience the diffusion of light and this is where you get the the um, the body of light phenomena and we're getting that also in uh, chan buddhism as well as in and uh, Vajrayana, and we're getting this experience. Now, what is this experience? Let's just talk a little bit more concretely now, not just Perfect. historically. Perfect. You know, the what starts to happen? A person receives, and, and this goes with the early Dzogchen experience in Tibet. The uh, people at the at a high level, at the court of the emperor, were receiving tantric initiations. All right. They are beginning to do the mantras, visualize themselves as the various deities or bodhisattvas. They are experiencing deeper states of meditation. Some of them are a little impatient with the, with the practices and the large numbers of mantras, but they are given guidance you know, by people like Vimala Mitra and other important disciples of Garabdurje that they should not be worried about that. That The main thing is to bring a clarity and relaxation of mind to all of these complicated practices, right? So that the, the frame of mind is what counts in addressing yourself to tantric ritual, liturgical practice, okay? Now, Well, that's it for today. Thanks for fastening your seat belts and joining us for this ride. He's amazing, isn't he? Father Francis, I have to keep reminding myself throughout the entire interview, I'm talking to a Catholic priest. Blew me away. 
And of course, a big thanks to Father Francis for sharing his extraordinary knowledge and expertise. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on Nightclub. As usual, there's always a lot going on. So I'll see you next time. And until then, pleasant dreams.